Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Well, happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers. I'll echo what's been said earlier. Uh, I have fond memories of mine. I have fond memories, and I know our three sons do, of their mother, whom I've been married to for over 61 years, and looking forward to more. We are continuing putting together the puzzle or the picture of God's grand plan, what I've called the big picture. And uh, the lesson today is number nine, the ninth piece of the puzzle, and you can see the other eight that we've already discussed here. I want to start out at the beginning and suggest that uh, this particular lesson has to do with what I would call the theological nugget of God's grand plan, and you'll see that in just a moment. We are going to be covering a lot of scripture, particularly in the book of Romans, but other places as well. And so uh, it is a little more involved and complicated is not the right word, but because of the number of scriptures may be harder to keep up with. I encourage you to take some notes and write at least the scriptures down, the references, and go and study them further uh, at your own leisure and uh, and convenience, but I will hopefully provide all the references for you. And oh, by the way, there will be a test at the end of the lesson. I have several questions for you, and I hope you will remember. uh, Well, actually, it's a test of me, so we'll see how that goes. Our first slide, uh, this worked just fine back in the back. Hmm. Can you help me, guys? The title of our lesson today is His Sacrifice Once and for All. And, of course, I'm referring to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we're obviously, and on, on the historical line, we're in the New Testament now. Uh, I want to remind you of a couple of Themes or patterns that we've observed earlier. One of those is salvation and rescue. That was, we saw that in the rescue, God's rescue, salvation of Noah and his family. We saw that over and over and over again as God rescued his people, the Israelites, from the consequences of their sin. Still not working. The other pattern that we've observed is uh, the sacrifice of blood. Uh, We saw that beginning with Cain and Abel, and of course we saw it institutionalized in the law of Moses. And so over and over, God rescues his people, and he calls on them to offer blood sacrifices. And I would suggest that after all of these cycles of sin and rescue, that there is a reasonable supposition or theory or Actually, I call it more than a theory. I think we can conclude uh, 
uh, that God, after these temporary things, they didn't, they only had temporary effects, that he had long ago, of course, decided that a final plan, a final sacrifice was going to be necessary. And that's exactly what he did. In Hebrews chapter 10, at verse 10, ah, now we have action. Uh, <clears throat> would, would you read with me? By the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So this is the final sacrifice. So God made us holy, sanctified through that sacrifice. And it's very much in accord with the purpose that we talked about earlier that Christ has for us to prepare us to be holy and blameless before him as we stand before him in judgment. So I would suggest that God indeed had a better plan. And as we read just a little bit later in Hebrews 10, uh, the Jews, of course, were called on to sacrifice once a year as a reminder of their sins. The unique aspect we know of Jesus Christ sacrifice. It was not a reminder. It was a remover. It removed sins once and for all. And so uh, the title, as I suggested, includes the word sacrifice. And I want to talk about sacrifice. This is a depiction of Adam and Eve as they were banned from the garden. And uh, in uh, When we read about that later on in Romans chapter 5, Romans 5, beginning at verse 14, we read, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So Adam's sin gave free reign to sin in the world, and it brought death, physical death, into the world. Uh, And so a part of the reason that a sacrifice is needed is because of sin, because of death. But there's more to that. And so we continue on with the question, why was a sacrifice necessary? Well, I have some additional things to suggest for your consideration. In the Old Testament, as we remember, God required the offering of animals' blood. And uh, I think the reason for that is given in Leviticus 17 at verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for the soul. That word atonement means to cover up. Life is in the blood. No animal we know lives without blood circulating through their veins, through their body. Blood was offered as an atonement or a covering in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, a different word is used. The word reconciliation is used there. And it has to do with the restoration of our relationship with God. So what Christ did in his sacrifice was to restore the lost relationship. He reconciled us. It's necessary because of what Adam did 
Adam and Eve to sin, to bring sin into the world, uh, if we are going to return to the garden, uh, God's plan is for us to have a sacrifice. I think we can conclude, really, based upon Cain and Abel and others, that from the beginning, blood sacrifice was a part of God's plan. So the question I ask further is, how is that going to play out for us today? Well, in Hebrews chapter uh, 4, or 9 rather, at uh, verses 13 through 15, consider this. For if the blood of bulls and goats and of ashes of a heifer, sprinkling of the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So the law of Moses' blood sacrifices cleansed in a moral sense, in a ritual sense, or rather in a ritual sense, but they did not cleanse the conscience uh, as the sacrifice of Jesus' blood uh, has done for us has and does for us. It permanently removes the guilt. There is no more guilt because the sin is gone. Jesus' blood doesn't cover up. It doesn't atone like it did in the Old Testament. It eliminates, it removes the sin. Now, from the beginning, blood was the means to cover sin, but uh, in Christ's case, uh, his blood removes, takes it away. Now, further on the question of why is a sacrifice necessary? In Romans chapter 3, we have this further evidence to consider provides validation of the need for a sacrifice. And I've listed here really just some excerpts from the verse, but I want to read that whole passage because uh, it is important, I think, to uh, consider the points that are made there. Beginning in Romans 3 at verse 9, if you would, you may follow with me. I would encourage you to do so. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they all are under sin. As it is written, and that was written in a variety of psalm references that he's quoting here, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have 
not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Surely you noticed all those negative terms, none, not, no, uh, used some seven or eight times just in this short passage. And they are all telling us that no one, not us, no one is righteous. No one's good enough to save himself. And then continue on in verse 19 of this passage in Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that's Moses' law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, and that's any law, uh, well, I lost my place. No flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law, and again, that's just any law, is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, please note that point, that those words, apart from the law, again, any law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law, Moses' law, and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This passage tells us the prophets were witnesses of the righteousness of God, and Moses' law pointed out the need for the righteousness of God. But none, no one, not anyone has righteousness on their own. We're in a hopeless condition. Uh, we all need the righteousness of God. In Romans chapter 6 at verse 23, another familiar passage to us, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So if we die in a sinful condition, we die eternally in the devil's hell. But this verse also tells us that God has for us a gift eternal life itself. And in this context, the broader context, he's talking about the gift of God's grace uh, and uh, freedom from slavery to sin, uh, the marvelous things that are a part of the righteousness of God brought on, made it possible by the blood of the once-for-all sacrifice. So in Christ, we're free from sin, but... That doesn't give us freedom to just do anything that we want to do. Uh, in actuality, we have then, we now are slaves of righteousness. Now, I've mentioned that term, the righteousness of God, several times. I want to ask the question now, what is it? What does Scripture tell us about that? Well, long, long ago, through Abraham, God signaled and gave a signal to all mankind as to what is the righteousness of God. And he did that through a sacrifice and what could have been shed blood. Uh, <clears throat> Abraham's name and his example comes up some 70 times in the New Testament. And that, I think, is testimony to the fact that he is a very significant character in God's grand plan. And what Abraham did for us is he exemplified or signaled the very nature of the kind of sacrifice that would be necessary for God to offer for him to make. 
God expected Abraham to offer his only begotten son, the son of promise, the one to whom he had promised a nation, a land, and a seed. But as time passed on, and looking back at Abraham's signal, if you will, I think most of us simply didn't get it. It had to be explained to us, and it is explained in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It's clear from this, I think, that Abraham could not, did not earn righteousness because he, even though he was a very good man, he could not earn the righteousness of God. It was accounted to him or credited to him or ascribed to him. So God's righteousness was a gift to Abraham. It was not because of anything that Abraham could or did do. And the New Testament explains to us also that his son Isaac was a type or a figure, a forecast, if you will, of what God planned to do in terms of sacrifice. His only begotten son would be sacrificed in like fashion as Abraham intended to offer Isaac. And we read about that in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, We read about the righteousness of God and the sacrifice and how it relates to it. Hebrews 11 at verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So we had this, I would call it a cloudy forecast beforehand in Abraham and Isaac as to what to expect in terms of the sacrifice that God had to offer. Uh, Then I think there's another question related to this. Again, coming to the term gift of righteousness of God. Uh, we need to consider or examine that expression further, I think. And I use this passage here, or a couple of passages in the book of Jeremiah. These are part of the prophecies in Jeremiah, and we find a number of them, that tell what will happen under the new covenant, that will tell what will happen in the future. And in these two verses, in Jeremiah 23 at verse 6, in Jeremiah 33 verse 16, the name that's given on the slide there, Jehovah Sitkunu, well, I can't pronounce it, Sitkunu, Kenu, I think it is, something like that. It means or translates the Lord our righteousness. In both contexts, in Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33, It's talking about the Messiah as the Lord our righteousness. In Jeremiah 33, 
It's talking about his people uh, that will be uh, benefited by, will be, have as their Lord, the Lord, our righteousness. Uh, and that is a unique term that's applied there only uh, in those two locations. So what it's sell- telling us, it is prophesying that Jesus is our righteousness. He has that name, our righteousness. And that name, in Jeremiah 33, will be ascribed to his people, to the people of God. John 3.16, we're familiar with, just God gave his son. In John 4.10, uh, Jesus is referred to as the gift of God. Now let's consider this further. In 2 Corinthians, uh, at verse, uh, chapter 9, at verse 14, the Holy Scripture, or the Holy Spirit rather, both the Holy Scripture and the Holy Spirit, refer to the grace of God that is in you. And what he's referring to, of course, is the grace of God, Christ himself in you. So to have Christ in us is to be saved, it's to be a Christian. Then in verse 15, he goes on to describe Christ himself as an indescribable gift. So we have Jesus called the Lord our righteousness. He's called our gift from God. He's indescribable. He's unimaginable. So being credited accounted with the gift of the righteousness of God, I suggest to you is to be clothed or credited with Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Without that, we have no hope. Uh, We can't, as we know, as we've already said, we can't be saved by our own righteousness. It has to be something that God does for them. So, We have this marvelous, indescribable gift of God. That's what it means to receive the gift, to receive the righteousness of God. But we need to ask another question. How do we acquire this gift? Is it even possible for us to acquire it as Abraham did? Can our sins be forgiven? How does that happen? Can it happen to anyone or just to select few? How do we go about acquiring that gift? As we've noticed, Jesus Christ himself is the gift, but can we receive the same thing that Abraham did uh, because of faith? Well, Romans again, one chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, and that means continues to believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's in the gospel. 
That's where we find about, learn about the gift of the righteousness of God. And it says that it's been revealed there in the gospel. And the gospel is referred to as dynamite or power, the power of God uh, to save us. And it goes on and says, it is everyone who continues to live by faith. So the idea of continuing to believe, continuing to have faith, is a condition is necessary for us to have credited to us this uh, gift that God has for us. And it says, those people shall live, and it's talking about the future, about the future spiritual life and the life we'll have in heaven. But again, going back to Romans 6 and verse 23, uh, we read earlier there that life means spiritual life now and in heaven. But I want to ask another question or raise another question. And that is, uh, well, before, yes, what is the impact of the gift on our life? Uh, what, how does the righteousness of God affect us? Well, Romans 5 and verse 17 through 19, I think, gives us a better understanding of that. Romans 5 at verse 17. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So this tells us one result of the gift of righteousness is the gift of life. Uh, and it's, it uses that expression much more. And it, the way it reads is that one man's offense, uh, that God's grace is said to be much more than one's offense, uh, man's offense. And that to me seemed a strange thing to say, but this expression, much more, is used, is a term used to show contrast. And what it's showing is a contrast between which something, something that God has done or is doing and something else that he has done or is doing. And it's saying that the gift that we get, the righteousness of God, the grace of God, is much more valuable. It's of much more significance than what God did in his wrath to condemn man to death. He gives us the gift of eternal life, where in Adam's sin, he brought physical death upon us. So it is much, much more in value what God has for us in the gift of righteousness. This passage also says that death reigned or ruled in the past because of Adam's sin. But now we receive grace and uh, we receive God's righteousness, eternal life. Uh, this idea of death ruling and this contrast that's offered. One other way to think of that is, is that we who were sinners were slaves to sin, trade place, trade places with the ruler death. No longer uh, is death ruling in our lives because of Christ. But continuing on in verse 18, 
Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Remember that term back in the Old Testament, the Lord, our righteousness, uh, or that is, uh, we will be made or given or accredited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have to make the choice, though. It's ours. Uh, do we choose the life? Do we choose the gift that's offered in Christ, the gift of life? Or do we continue in our lack of faith or unbelief and choose the wrath of God? Receiving this gift of righteousness is further described in Romans chapter 4. And uh, at verse Beginning at verse 23, I think I have up there 22, but I want to start in verse 23 of Romans 4. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, and that's speaking of Abraham having credited to him the righteousness of God. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who has delivered us who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So even though we sinners are unworthy, we cannot stand just before God. We cannot be anything other than worthy of God's wrath. But Christ justifies us. His sacrifice justifies us. Then I'd like to summarize some things that I hopefully hopefully you've been able to conclude from all of this. First of all, only the blood of Christ is that one and final sacrifice. Secondly, no one, none of us is righteous. Thirdly, the gift of God's righteousness comes to us by his grace through or because of our faith, which is revealed in the gospel. That is a part of, at least, the story, the biblical story of the gift of God's righteousness. Now I have some questions for you. Here comes the test. We've talked about the gift of the righteousness of God. First question, and this is to open up the floor. Why did God require a sacrifice? Hopefully you picked up one or two points, or maybe you already understood this already. Why did he require a sacrifice? Sin and death. All right. Very good. Because of what Adam had done. No one is righteous. We can't save ourselves. Uh, We all die in hell if if God doesn't give us that gift. He doesn't give us that sacrifice. Second question. Why did God require a blood sacrifice? 
Remember that passage in Leviticus that I read briefly? Why did he require blood sacrifice? Life is in the blood. Exactly. Life is in the blood. And that means it has a double meaning, of course, physical life. But for us, in the blood of Christ, it's spiritual life. What was Abraham's role in God's plan? Do you remember his role with Isaac? He was kind of like the weatherman. A little bit of a forecast about what was to come. It was maybe a little difficult to read, but we also, of course, see in that the uh, repetition, if you will, or the reinforcement of the message that a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, is what is required of God. Next question. What is the gift of God's righteousness? What was the conclusion of that? What is the gift? Or maybe I should say, who is the gift? I may have heard Christ, those passages in Jeremiah that are forecasting, prophesying the coming of the Messiah, it says in these days or in the coming days, and it goes on to speak about Jesus Christ. And in fact, it mentions the Davidic covenant and the fact that the one that was coming would fulfill, would continue David's kingdom uh, and be the fulfillment uh, of the promise that he made to David. So it was Jesus Christ who is the gift. How do we acquire it? Well, before you answer through baptism, uh, that wasn't what I was talking about, although that is a fundamental part of it, but how do we how do we acquire the gift of the righteousness of God? Faith. faith. Exactly. And it talks about from faith to faith. Uh, that's talking about the revelation. We receive that faith. Faith comes by hearing. Uh, it comes by hearing the gospel. Uh, and uh, remember it was referred to, it contains the power, the dynamite of God to impute, to ascribe, to credit, to our account, however you want to say it, through faith that we have the righteousness of God. And it is vital to us to remember, I know we do, but let me reinforce it. We have to continue and that literally in the New Testament text, those words are used in the continuing sense. Uh, not have faith now in the moment. Final question. What is the impact on us or the consequences to us? In one word, we have life. Exactly. No longer ruled over by death, but we have life. We, in effect... Trade places with death because of Christ. He's given us the victory. We rule now uh, over death 
because of Christ's victory, because he is our righteousness. He is our gift. I have, I think, just about exhausted our time. There may be uh, some who have a thought, further observation, or maybe you think I'm all wet about this. But I think the gift of the righteousness of God is an important piece, maybe the vital piece, uh, of God's grand big picture plan. Any other further thoughts? Anyone? Well, I, I thank you for your attention. I hope I have not exhausted you by trying to cover too many scriptures at once. This is a little bit of a complicated thing to follow through all of the passages to prove some of these points. But I hope that uh, we've been able to benefit. I know I have in the study of it. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We are overwhelmed as we consider your indescribable gift to us. Gift which we can never earn, which we can never be worthy. But yet, your love, your generosity, your kindness, your mercy, and that of our Savior makes it possible to receive this wonderful gift from you. The gift that you ascribe to us, the righteousness of our Savior. Father, we're thankful to that. We're thankful for the understanding that your scriptures provide for us in this regard. And Father, we pray that you would help us to pattern our lives in just any small way that we may be able to influence others to understand and to accept and have faith in this gift which you have given us. Father, again, we thank you Again, we praise you for your power, for your love, in giving us the gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.